of your eye, huddled in the darkest shadows of imagination, it waits. Now is the time to face the fear. Welcome to Horror Lasagna. Embrace the trepidation. Season three, we're still doing Culture Clash, and this time we've got the autopsy of Jane Doe, which from my understanding does really well at keeping your screensaver from activating. That's true. It does. It keeps your machine running up and awake the whole time. That's great. You're killing monsters yourself. <laughs> yes. That's because it's a film from the UK in 2016. If it was a different movie or a different year, it wouldn't work as well. Oh, it has to be that conjunction of just perfect alignment yeah. going on. But yeah. It does have some magic in here. It's a witch story. kind of. It's true. It's also a very traditional horror film in that it runs an hour and 26 minutes, which is just about the perfect length for yeah. horror movies without getting ridiculous. Yeah. Just the general feel from the movie. I was like, wow, how do you pitch this movie? Okay. We want to do a movie that's focused around watching these guys do an autopsy. What do you think? It just, but that's really the whole movie. It's just one of those classic horrors, especially when you talk about like 70s horror, that just a little piece here and there that keeps building into this overall story. There's not tons of jump scares, and the jump scares that are there are goofy, really. Yeah. Thinking and, the same and thing. The, it just builds in the story till the very end when everything comes together and clicks as the story. It's not even a big bad monster anywhere. It's the story of everything. And that's the horrific part. And the culture clash is interesting in this one too. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like so many horror movies that we do, this one made strange bedfellows. This is a UK production. It's set in the U S but it was actually shot in Kent, England. It was released in Canada and directed by a Norwegian. So we yeah, got, it's a hodgepodge. again, yeah, it premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival on September 9th in 2016, but the public release wow, in the U.S. And we're was filming this on the 13th. It's like anniversary. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think of that. That's crazy. Okay, the U.S. release was December 21st. Oh, perfect so, Christmas movie. It's budget, again, not really visible. It made teeny tiny drop of money in the United States. It made $10,474 in the box office in the U.S. Huh. But it grossed $6.1 million worldwide. Nice. It was nominated for 18 awards. It won 10 of them, two of which they won at fantastic fest and stephen king is a fan of this film he compares it to early cronenberg's work which i kind of see but i kept thinking as i was watching the movie for the third time it does feel like a stephen king story didn't it absolutely he does actually have one about an autopsy in the morgue at, where the guy was bit by some snake that got, he got paralyzed and as they're about to cut them open, they realize, okay, this maybe not appropriate for 
the so any kids close your ears but they realize as they're about to cut him open he's got this really good looking female doctor and he starts to get an erection and that's how they know he's alive i'm like well, that's good stephen king right there but yeah yeah it, it felt yeah it's that short story build up and the movie felt like a big budget hollywood without lots of crazy over-the-top special effects and we're spending lots of money the we talk about the shots the way it looks just all of that fit that mold but then it feels like a short story from the 70s so yeah yeah and i just i love the whole how this movie came about there's a norwegian director named andre overdahl and before this, the only way you knew of Andre Overdahl was if you had seen Troll Hunter, which I have, and it was an amazing film. I really I enjoyed it. it. Oh, you say you have it or you I, haven't seen it? I have it, have not watched it yet. Oh, I enjoyed it a lot. And it's a found footage film, and it's a horror movie, monster movie. It's even got some pseudo comedy kind of light spots in it. It's a really nice blend of stuff. But he made that, and it did really well. And then he went out, and he saw The Conjuring. And he decided he wanted to make something that was the opposite of what he had done with Troll Hunter. He didn't want it found footage. He didn't want it a monster, but he wanted it to be scary. Now, Steve, have you ever heard of The Blacklist? Yes, I've heard of that. He told his agent, go find me a good script. And his agent found this script on The Blacklist. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's it was no wonder it didn't have a big release and didn't do well in the U.S. <laughs> and everywhere else it did. <laughs> yep. It was written by two guys, Ian Goldberg and Richard Nang. And the idea they had was to do a contained movie that was all about a body and solving this mystery of what happened to it. That's they uh, like definitely the, ambitious. Yeah. Especially they the do idea it so well. They like the idea that the deeper you cut into Jane, the deeper you got into her story, and the deeper you got into the relationship between Brian Cox and Emil, their characters, as right. you go on Tommy and Austin. Yeah, um, I, I thought that. It was almost like a one of those games where you have to click to do the mystery on the computer. Where yeah, yeah. Do, the room, the, that whole puzzle almost is what it was. Very much so. Yeah. It was the first movie they had written that was made into a full-length feature. They outlined the story together with a really detailed outline, and then they wrote half of the film each, passing the script back and forth. Wow. Interesting. Um, hey, your visuals are back up. Oh, that's interesting because your mouth wasn't matching what you were saying. You looked Korean there for a moment. Now it's back. Oh, yeah. You're not synced either, but you're at least, you're at least back <laughs> okay. up. Ian Goldberg, and he's more of a believer in the occult, and he was saying it really annoyed him because Richard would never send him anything until 8 o'clock at night. So he'd read over Richard's stuff, and it would freak him out, and he wouldn't want to go to sleep. Wow, the story writers are freaking each other out. That's good. <laughs> yeah. They've worked together on a television show, The Dead of Summer. They worked together on the movie Eli. If you oh, haven't seen that, that's a pretty good that, one. Yeah, that was a good one. I remember that one, The Kid on Netflix. And Fear of the Walking Dead. They worked together on a couple episodes of that. Oh, good. Cool. 
Goldberg on his own has also worked on a few episodes of Krypton, Criminal Minds, and The Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Oh. I didn't have to dial back in. It fixed itself. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I guess we're cutting that chunk out. <laughs> yeah, and you're saying, check that out. Okay, then. All right, so. I had just gone over the writers of the film. Yes. Andre Overdahl is was the director. He's Norwegian. He's really big on sharing credit with the entire team of the films he works on. I saw a lot of interviews with him about this. And he was constantly just throwing the credit to everybody else except him. Nice. He's probably one of those guys then that everybody says, oh, I loved working with him. Yeah, he credits a lot of the success of this film to the quality of the writing and the script. He went to visit several morgues to get ready for the film and interviewed morticians. Well, and he loved that. I hope you were going to say he interviewed several bodies. No, he loved the mystery of the whole tale where you want to know what happened to her, but it gets more dangerous as you get closer to the truth. He tries to keep other films out of his mind when he's directing. A lot of people are like, what was your inspiration for this? And he's like, I, I try not to think about other movies while I'm directing. He claims that Seven was one of the films he took inspiration from. Which is interesting because one of the first things I say is, okay, at near the beginning is, what is this? It's like a police procedural. It's a little bit like Saw. It was really hard to pin down at the beginning what this really was and what it felt like. Yeah. yeah. He also is really pragmatic He's because he, he got asked a lot if there's going to be a sequel. And he's, he doesn't think it made enough money to warrant being made into a sequel. He she's knows going to, she's going to what, meet up with Michael Myers and go hunt them people down. And... She was at the end. She's being transported somewhere else. Yeah. In but, theory, you could. Yeah. But what story are you going to do? That's different. Plus it's any it holds different, up right. and is good. It's, it'd be a crappy sequel. You know that. Yep. And I can think he did too. Yeah. That's good. The film was shot in sequence. They just started at the start of the script and worked all the way through it. Oh, well, which is yeah, that, cool. that's interesting too, because I know they don't do that a lot in movies. But right. in this, I could see how it would keep the building in the filming so the actors really know where their character is coming from. And I'm not an actor, but you always see that, you know, we're filming this today, but it was the end of the movie. And so it gets, actors will say all the time, I had no idea what this movie was going to be like. We can't tell when we were filming it, but to right. be in one spot like this, not all over the place. And with the way the lack of or the style of special effects in this film, they could get away with that. They didn't have to like book specific time to have special effects people in and right. you know, cluster. I am. Okay. Hopefully that'll resolve our connectivity issues. All right, where were we? We just finished talking about how it was shot in sequence. Shot in sequence. All right, moving on. Yes. This was his first English language film. Oh. Um, he finds atmosphere more important than story or even character. So he's all about the atmosphere. Oh, I guess that comes from a filmmaker because lots of people would totally disagree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, story, the script writers probably very much. <laughs> Considering they were freaking themselves out in the story. Yeah, yeah. He said he liked how you were sympathetic with Jane throughout the film <clears throat> until suddenly at the end, you're scared of her because <laughs> as they're going along, it's, oh my gosh, what happened to this poor girl? And then all of a sudden it's, oh my gosh. And then at the end, you could even make the case that 
you hate her if you wanted to. Yeah. He also said this was his all-time favorite score. And again, I didn't look up who did the music, which I should have. But Yeah, the music did not stick out and it right. added perfectly. It was I didn't even really think about the music, which means it fit in and was in the right spots and all of that. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah. He has nine directorial credits on his CV, a couple shorts, the found footage film, Troll Hunter, we mentioned it, and he did Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Have you seen that? No, that actually is on my list for this year. Yeah. It's pretty entertaining. He's been tapped to do the sequel as well. It's based on a kid's young adult book or something, isn't it? Yep. With really good yep. a, Like a series. Book. Yeah. Yeah. One of my all-time favorite actors is in this. Brian Cox plays Tommy. Yes. And I just think he's amazing. I, I've never seen a bad performance out of him. I've seen some bad movies he's been in, but I've never seen a bad performance out of him. Yeah, he does really good. Uh, Both, they all do. It's a small cast, and those two are in it 90%, and everybody else is 10 Yeah. He's Scottish, and it's funny because he's really squeamish when it comes to gore. So <laughs> there were parts of this film he had a hard time getting through that's funny he's also big on passing accolades onto his cast members he was really complimentary of everyone else you could find interviews with andre and emil hirsch and even the screenwriters pretty easily but i only found like one that brian cox was sitting in on which kind of makes sense because you know he's a very busy guy and to show you how busy he is he has 236 film credits holy jeez yeah, going back to 1965 on a television show called The Wednesday Play. There were a ton of titles on there that I didn't re- recognize, and I bet it's because they're British shows from like the 70s and 80s. But he was in Rob Roy. I forgot he was in Rob Roy. Oh, yeah. He was in Braveheart, Red Dwarf. He did voice for Superman, the animated series. He was in Red Dwarf. Kiss the Girls. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hey, I just watched that. Yeah. Okay. The Boxer. Rushmore, Super Troopers, Frasier, The Born Identity, Born Supremacy, yes, The Ring. Was, I just watched Born also. That's one of my, oh, yeah, he was be. Yep. X2, X-Men United, Danny Phantom, Matchpoint, Deadwood, The Water Horse, Trick or Treat, Red and Red 2. And this one's just for you, Steve. Scooby-Doo and the Samurai Sword. Oh, yeah. All right. Was he the Samurai Sword? <laughs> I don't know. He was also in the Fantastic Mr. Fox. He was the voice of the Elder Ood in Doctor Who. Oh, wow. Um, oh, it's British. Rise... Mean, it's got to be on Doctor Who at some point. Yeah. Rise of Planet of the Apes, Forsaken, Penny Dreadful, Bob the Builder, Mega Machines. Wow. And from that to Churchill, to Super Troopers 2, Good <laughs> Omens, The Simpsons, Blade Runner, Black Lotus. So one um, of those actors that you've seen at some point doing something that's good, but never that stand out that if you passed him on the street, you might do a double takes. Like I, I know that guy type thing. Yeah. But like you said, if he's in it, Oh, I know him. And this is, you get that. It's going to be good feeling. Emil Hirsch is a California born actor. He's got 70 titles on his IMDb page, which I thought was pretty impressive for as young as he looks. Yeah, absolutely. I thought he was only like 20 or 21. Mm-hmm. He spent a lot of time with the Los Angeles County Morgue, which turns out to be the world's largest morgue to prepare for this film. 
I, I'm not sure if that's the distinction I'd really, hey, I work in the largest morgue in the world because we have so many killings in our city. Yeah. Um, he's, he found himself in what he describes as a Costco with dead bodies on the racks. Wow. Yeah, it shocked and traumatized him and made him question if it was worth the trauma to prepare for the film, but he says it was. Wow. I'm always big on new experiences and living life. So is that living life through the dead? That's, yeah. Yeah. He said for this film, he felt ridiculous if he was trying to get into the head of his character. He didn't like the method version because he just felt it made it seem silly. So he was purposely trying to be detached as he was going through it. Oh, okay. Stuff you've seen him in. He was in Third Rock from the Sun, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, NYPD Blue, ER. Around here is where I realized he's older than he looks. Yeah, absolutely. You said Third Rock from the Sun. That's been off for a while. Yeah. The Girl Next Door, Lords of Dogtown, The Air I Breathe, Speed Racer, Milk. Then there, I didn't know this, there are a couple Troll Hunter series that spin off, spun off the movie. Andre doesn't do them, but somebody does, and he's been in a couple of those. Are you sure it's not the cartoon? It might be. There, there's a Troll oh, yeah. Hunters cartoon that nothing to do with that Troll Hunter movie. Just name the same. Okay. I actually had a British medical, ex- medical examiner on set to try and keep things authentic. And it was funny, he was telling this story. He's So I was talking to him. And I'm like, so what do you do when you're not doing autopsies? He's nothing. I never leave my house. And he's like, why? And he's, see this man here? He's dead. He was mowing his yard and something chipped a little piece off of the blade of his mower and it flew up through the air and cut his carotid artery and it killed him. I don't go outside of my house. You, You just need a machine gun. You shoot it and it'll get hot and you can cauterize the wound. I've seen it. Okay, yeah. It was in, what was it? John Carpenter's Vampires. (laughs) Baldwin. I was going to say, you were just talking to me about that. Yeah, that's how you save yourself. Only only works if you're a Baldwin. Okay. Yeah. Ophelia Lovabond played Emma. She's a British actress who's been in 59 films, including Oliver Twist, Inspector Lewis, Mr. Popper's Penguins. She was in Thor Dark World, uncredited, but she got her credit as she played the same character in Guardians of the Galaxy. She was Karina, the collector's Oh, um, okay, yeah. Servant. I see that, yeah. She also did voiceover for Forza Horizon 4, and Karina shows up in What If, so she was in that too. This is fun. Michael McKelleton is an Irish actor who played Sheriff Burke. He's been in 92 films, including voiceover work in Assassin's Creed 4, Black Flag, Game of Thrones, Final Fantasy 4, Stormblood, Justice League, the DOS Boot series, The Last Duel, The Wheel of Time, and The Hallow. <laughs> there we go. We bring him back. Yeah. He was the creepy guy who like kept trying to talk to the guy whose daughter had been taken. Okay. Okay. Huh. Wow. And it was re- totally different. It was really funny because once I recognized that's who it was, you could actually catch times where his Irish accent was creeping into his English because it's supposed to take place in Virginia. But I was like, oh, I got a little bit of the eye there in what he was saying. 
with the budget most of our movies they can't do endless retakes for a slight miss slight slip <laughs> that's true all right and the last actor we're going to talk about is owen katherine kelly owen katherine kelly plays jane i was wondering if it was a real person throughout the obviously not all parts of it were real <laughs> we'll just you're really getting into the role we're gonna cut your chest open Andre was very insistent that they actually have someone who do it. And in fact, that's always her. Wow. They just put prosthetics on top of her. Wow. And everybody who was in this film was like, she was amazing. Do you think it took her long she, to get all her lines down? She was, she's like a yoga master, which is how she can sit there for a very long take and not blink her eyes or breathe. Wow. That's crazy. She was super I know. She was super she didn't want to interrupt the other actors. That was her biggest concern. Wow. She was the first person that they that tried out for the role and Andre was like it's going to be her. And how do you try out like, for this role other than <laughs> you have to Okay, could you just lay on this table for like 10 minutes? Let's see how you do. <laughs> yeah. And they like tried a bunch of other people but Andre knew as soon as he saw her that it was going to be her. She lives right next door to the casting director. So <laughs> it was one of those weird things. She said after she met him, she had complete trust in him during the whole process. And she did admit it's a little awkward to just be lying on a cold slab, buck naked for hours at a time, <laughs> surrounded by a staff and cast the crew that are almost all male. But, yeah, I bet um, that was a little uncomfortable at times for everybody. Yeah. She became attached to the character and felt pretty sympathetic and defensive over, over the process of the film about Jane. So in the end, when you might be mad at Jane, she's just, yeah, go get him. That's funny because I did. Even when you find out the more reveal of what's going on and what has been going on, I still felt that sympathy for her because honestly, it, let, you could have a discussion. What's justice and what's fair of course she took it out on people that didn't cause that on her correct but, so that's revenge that's misplaced yeah. revenge but yeah okay. emil hirsch was saying that there were lots of times where they were shooting and he'd have to do something with a tool or an implements like a scalpel or something and he would grab it and he would stop and just double check to make sure that she had the prosthetic on before he did anything <laughs> <laughs> but the fact that she was, it was actually her the whole time constantly made him like second guess before he did anything. Now, is this all ready to go or am I actually going to hurt somebody here? Wow. That's good. Especially after some of the incidents we've had all the time. But yeah. See, if I was her, it would so be those very intense moments where they're come down and be like, ah! <laughs> everybody, I, I wouldn't be able to resist. <laughs> She'd been in two other films before this too. A film called Darkness on the Edge of Time and Why Life Sucks When You're in Your 20s. <laughs> I like the title. She's been in three other movies since. Hopefully she's had more more lines. More clothes. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be chilly. Throughout the film, there's a song that plays. That song is called Open Up Your Heart and Let the Sun Shine In. This version of it was performed by the McGuire Sisters. Okay. It was... It was recorded on a 45 RPM 
record, but they played it at 33 and a third. <laughs> okay. I used to do that. <laughs> yeah. It was also recorded in 1954 in the UK by a band called the Cowboy Church Sunday School. But the McGuire sisters were from the US. It was covered by Ann Murray in 1977. I was going to say, um, I recognize the song. I've heard it. Yeah, you can find versions of Ann Murray doing it in 77 on YouTube. It was also covered by Pebbles and Bam in an episode of the Flintstones. That's probably where I know it from. More than likely. More, the, more likely that than Ann Murray. Probably. Yeah. All right. So the film starts with credits and what looks like a night sky, a starry night sky. But as time goes on and the credits are running, you realize that it's dirt or ground and it's being moved but not like by a shovel or anything it's just time lapse and while the credits run you get this unfocused scene of something outside that's upside down and as it comes into focus you're looking through a willow tree at cars parked in a driveway yeah it was an interesting way to start especially when you reflect back at the end of the movie we get a lot of those yeah. there's a the stuff that you usually pick out for us to watch, definitely pay attention to those openings because so often the openings are more integral than you would think. Yeah. I always refer to them as the don't look away films because <laughs> as soon as you do, something's going to happen and it's going to be slight, but it's going to be a big key and you're going to miss it. Yeah. A lot of slight. Yeah. There's a tag that comes, pops up on the screen telling you you're in Grantham, Virginia. It's a split level house. There's nobody outside, but as soon as you get inside, there's tons of activity. Medical examiners taking pictures. There's lots of blood and evidence tags on the floor. There's the body of an old woman with a gun. There's blood everywhere. There's a body of a dead older man. And this investigator heads upstairs and finds another body lying in the hall. A Hispanic gentleman. Younger. The uh, officer looks out the window and sees a news crew pull up next to the sheriff's car and someone in the basement calls him down in the basement. This is Sheriff Burke. He starts down the basement and there's this dirt floor and there's a pale naked woman that looks like she's partially buried in the floor. At this point, the sheriff declares her Jane Doe because there's no identification anywhere near her. There's no marks on her body. A deputy says it didn't look like anyone was breaking in. It looks more like they were trying to break out. And that was never a good sign. Yeah, that was the first thing I'm like, oh, okay. So that whole beginning thing, really get the feel that it's going to be why they're dead, why they're shooting with all the blood. But it's not. A locked door mystery. Yeah, it was all just for that line of, it looks like they were trying to get out. And that should hang with you for the movie. (laughs) Yep. It's important to note here, and you see it throughout the entire movie, how clean her body is she's buried in a dirt floor but the camera really emphasizes the whiteness of her skin in the scene that color denotes that she's dead but her body for being partially buried in a dirt floor is immaculately clean pristine yeah there's no marks nothing anywhere very obvious that becomes important here in a bit yeah now we cut away to a new set and this is all like atmosphere happening right here there's this spiral staircase heading down into what looks like a brick basement and lights are coming on but the brick basement's really just a hallway and 
opens into this wood paneled room. There's an elevator, a desk with computers, a picture letting us know that it is the Tilden Morgue and Crematorium. It is this really nice little collection of shots. It sets the setting of where you're at. And it looks used. Not it not like it's abandoned, but also not like they it just set the setup. It doesn't look like in a lot of the police shows, like we mentioned, like it's some new building or downtown. It has an old yeah. feel to it. Yeah, very much. So. Yep. And the ME is stereotype for shows. He's eating, he's singing, the radio's going, nothing's bothering him. That's like the stereotype ME because it's the opposite of what you always think, except for the real yep. ME that was on set, it sounds <laughs> And this transition reminded me of Midsummer, where like it was dark and airy and dreamy, and there's this loud thing, and then there was this harsh phone ring. In this case, you had this nice kind of music and this tone setting thing of the actual mortuary itself. And then suddenly there's this loud blast of music and bright lights as Austin is there working on what looks to be a burnt body. Brian Cox is doing the examination, Tommy. His son's taking pictures of the Polaroid and they just get right into it. They're weighing heart, weighing the heart, taking tissue samples, cutting into him, pulling the brain out of the brain case and weighing it bagging everything and there's a recording on a camera the entire time recording everything right about now is where you get this sense that they're not going to shy away from anything in this film right yeah and they really don't they're it's a pretty graphic film right all through yeah yeah not for the kids (laughs) no not so much between the naked woman throughout (laughs) the vast majority of it Lots of anatomy being cut open. Not to mention Tommy's doing scary stuff later. Yeah. Stay with stories doing this... in the dark. <laughs> yeah. Yes, for sure. Although that one was pretty creepy in places as well. Tommy's doing this rundown about what the cause of death is. And he's quizzing his son who automatically jumps to smoke inhalation. The body's burnt up. Tommy's pointing out that that's not what killed him. And it turns out the guy was killed by what looks like a blow to the head. And Tommy has this quote here that fits the movie just perfectly. He says, everybody has a secret. Some just hide them better than others. That's the theme right there. Yeah. Austin comes back with some cheesy line about some people are better at finding it, meaning that Tommy is the superior medical examiner. Austin looks up to his father, but he also feels inferior to him. And you'll have that, which is ridiculous because Tommy's got years and years of background with him but austin notes that the man died because he was alone and tommy ever the pragmatist says no he died because he hit his head (laughs) didn't matter whether he was alone or not he hit his head that's what killed him because being alone or with people doesn't really seem to save people in this movie yes not at all alone or with someone else austin has a date later with his girl emma And during their discussion, we find out that Tommy doesn't go out much. The morgue itself is in this lovely old isolated farmhouse. And that's actually the office building for this film set in Kent. Really? So they just use, yeah, they use the office building as scenes for the outside. And then they built the set on the soundstage. Wow. They mentioned the last movie that he went and saw was The Notebook. I mean, 
that's truly a scary movie there <laughs> it is austin puts the dead man back in a drawer and we hear these noises coming from a vent and you're like oh is this is this the start but it turns out it's stanley the cat who is in the vent and he's caught himself a rat yes right about now steve is going yet another animal <laughs> it's not a dog but i've gotten close to some cats lately so you gotta feel i didn't feel for the rat though oh, okay poor rat yeah when you live in farm country and you have mice and rats eating through your house and your food and shit you yeah, don't get to those guys yeah and the sequence are set the sequences are set up to be tension filled yeah, even though there's nothing going on, just to creep the viewer out. And you can tell because there's this jump scare as soon as Emma shows up. She scares Austin. It's the first time she's been down there. He's really nervous, but she is super fascinated by the whole deal. Yeah. And I got the fa- the feeling from the father in this scene that he was like, yeah, let her see it partly to play with her, but partly because, hey, your mother had to get used to this. So if you're serious, she's going to have to get used to this because he's thinking yeah. the son's taking over the the business. And there's this shot where the body drawers, uh, there's two of them. There's two and then two underneath it. And then there's like a support, wall support. And then there's two on the other side of the wall support. And there's this scene where she's standing in between them just like this visual foreshadow that she's going to end up in one of those drawers in the long run. You know what I mean? Yeah. She never does actually, to the best of our knowledge, well, uh, actually end up in not one of those in drawers. The, movie, but at least. the drawers are there to symbolize people being dead. So Austin's against her seeing any bodies. He's there's some things you can't see. Even Tommy shows up and he's like, go ahead. And so she goes to pick one. Um, she picks one on the end and Austin opens a drawer and slides her out. And it's a lady. She's been all stitched shut. Her eyes and mouth are stitched shut. Emma's like, no, she wanted to see the one next to it. But it's important so, to see uh, that lady. <laughs> yes. What she looked like. And it's a good way to actually do it. Yeah, there's not um, a lot of fluff in this movie. There's not a lot of every scene. It just moves along. Even it's if very lean. How, how can cutting a body apart and autopsy that's what you think how can that be interesting but it just keeps going and building there's no yeah yeah it pulls out the next one uh, there's this hole where the face should have been the sheets tucked into it the guy shot in the face looks um, like a ass face from creature there's a bell tied around his ankle and she's wondering what it's there for and tommy explains it was to make sure the victim's dead because in the old days it was hard to tell the difference between a dead body and a comatose one. And he says he does it because he's a traditionalist. And Emma wants to pull back the sheet to see his face. And Austin's like, no, don't do it. And Tommy's like, no, go ahead. And just as she's about to pull it back, Tommy rings the bell so she jumps. Funny games with dead bodies. Austin walks her back to the elevator just as the sheriff shows up with Jane Doe. And Tommy sends him off, says, yeah, I don't need you. And Austin notes how the sheriff looked when he came in, and he doesn't want to leave his dad there alone. We find out that Austin's planning to leave in the future. He doesn't want to stay here. This isn't his long-term goal, but he hasn't discussed it with his father yet. One of those subdermal secrets that this movie's got so many of. <laughs> ah, subdermal secrets. Ah, I see what you did there. <laughs> Thanks. He asks Emma to come back at 
11 o'clock and they'll go to the midnight showing of whatever movie they were going to go. And I'm betting about now he's probably wishing that he had gone Yeah, right then. A little quicker. Though I, I bet she's the, the thing that the cop says is, oh, but you got to get it because I need answers for the media, blah, blah, blah. So you need to spend all night doing this. I like, okay, that's a little weak contraption to get him to stay, but okay, we'll just go with it. And you're right. And I agree with you. There's two points. That was one of them that seems a bit weak to me, yeah. like story-wise. The second one, I'll get to the second one when we get to it, because it. it's later on in the... The sheriff's briefing Tommy on where they found her, but they've got nothing else. The cat is growling at the thing. Always a sign in a movie when the animals yeah. react. Right. And the body, again, immaculately clean. Almost Austin shows boards off dirt and everything. It does. And I'm going to put this out now. It happens very rarely, but on occasions, there are shots where you can just for a half a second see the bottom of her feet. And the bottom of her feet are dirty. (laughs) She's walking around the set barefoot. It could be that, or you could look at it as she's not really dead. She's like walking around and doing stuff like that. But I thought it was an interesting little thing that they did because they could have had her lay down and then ripped out her feet, but they left it on there. Yeah. So I guess, nice. Okay. Yeah. That's even deeper than I I would have thought. Good. As you point out, the sheriff mentions that he needs this done tonight because she was the mystery here. And they already have some cockamamie story about how the hispanic guy who came in to do work on the house must have killed everybody or something like that so (laughs) they just need to solve what this woman was so they need this done now okay so they start setting up and there's little kind of spunky music going on tommy records an intro tag on the video camera as that they run during the autopsies and he goes through and explains how they're going to do a four-step evaluation Tommy's correcting Austin, who's assuming the body's about 20, and Tommy's just saying we can't make that assumption. Austin notes that there are no signs of damage on the outside and no distinctive external markings on the body, which is actually big if you think about it. If you just stop down and look at yourself, I have like cherry blastomas all over the place. It's just something that happens through life, but she's got nothing. Yeah, I've got scratches. Not a mole. Yep, nothing. (laughs) And we get to the first mystery when he peels back her eyelids because her eyes are clouded. And apparently the eyes don't cloud over on a corpse unless the corpse has been dead for a while and there's no sign of rigor mortis. So the body hasn't been dead for a while. So you have that kind of contradiction there right off the bat. And and so, of course, I'm starting to go, okay, we got a zombie. (laughs) You know what I mean? Uh... that, That was just... It's a horror movie, so it's got to be a zombie. I didn't think it'd be a vampire, which it could be, because the toe, the ringing bell thing, that was a big vampire thing back in the day that, that helped bring about the whole vampire thing in our culture. But I was like, oh, it can't be a vampire for two reasons. One, we've already done several vampires. Reese is not going to do that many vampire movies. And number two, well, she was gap-toothed. I've never seen the gap-toothed vampire, so I thought zombie. Wow. Because <laughs> zombies, the teeth don't matter. Right, yeah. As <laughs> long as you're body, there. Yeah, it's yeah, that's just the stereotype for a zombie. 
Yeah. But it turns out she's colder than the ambient temperature, which is a little bit of a bizarre thing. It's like the anti-life thing. Is If you're alive, you're going to be warmer than the ambient temperature. But if you're colder, then you must be sucking the life out of the room. Oh. They only show the breath one time that I caught throughout the movie. Towards the end? Yeah. Her turns out her wrists and ankles are fractured, but there's no sign of outside, no outward sign of damage. So somehow her ankles and wrists were shattered, but there's no sign that it's done from the outside. He also comments that there's peat under her nails and in her hair, which is funny because they do such a good job making her so immaculate. But the fact they could find that and peat is not something that occurs naturally in Virginia, apparently. Tommy said. Yeah, this is the kind of thing you'd find up north. Yeah, and you're right. I didn't even think about that. With the only spot you get the dirt is under the fingernail. Yeah. I don't um, remember feet. Yeah, that's right. They open her mouth. Here's a new surprise. Her tongue has been removed crudely. Not yeah. they like. It looked pretty nasty. <laughs> yeah. It's also this kind of. It goes by quickly. She's missing a molar in the back on the bottom. And they don't make a big deal about it because they're focused on the tongue. But it turns out to be important later. Tommy starts to theorize that she was bound and had her tongue removed. Austin goes in for a photo when her nose starts to bleed and a fly comes out. Which I suppose is probably not uncommon kind of thing for a medical examiner, but it's still... No, but if if she was buried, it would be. Partly buried, but yeah. Yeah. Tommy finds a string in her mouth and we hear thunder outside. Then he notes she's been vaginally traumatized and that covers the external exam. So they're moving on to the internal exam now. You hear more thunder. And just as Tommy is ready to cut her open, the lights flicker and the radio kicks on. There's some static and then a jumble of voices. And then the song starts that open up your heart and let the sun shine in or whatever it is. Age of Aquarius. Austin doesn't like it. Yeah, so he changes the channel. As soon as Tommy cuts her open, she starts bleeding like she's alive, like it's a fresh corpse. That, Austin that takes was, the blood... That was pretty freaky. We, I've never been in an autopsy, but we've all seen enough of the movies. Once they're dead, the blood coagulates and it dries up and you don't get that. But she bled like the heart was pumping. Because that's the other thing people don't realize is if the heart's not pumping, the blood doesn't gush everywhere. That was pretty, it was a slight jump scare. Definitely unexpected. But, and it's funny too, because if you've ever gone hunting or something and you're skinning a rabbit, they don't bleed like that, you know, they're dead. You know what I mean? You just skin the rabbit and it's pretty bloodless, really. But that was a lot of blood that just comes out. That's why they, they hang them up to drain all the blood first before you're cutting up the deers and stuff. Yeah. So Austin takes a blood sample from this, puts it in the fridge, and Tommy's asking for rib cutters. Austin heads back to get them, and then he notices blood is dripping from the fridge. And he opens it to find the vial that he put in there is broken. And there's blood everywhere inside the fridge. And the first thing I thought was, that's way more blood than was in that little vial. Yeah. And you got to, he's like, oh, I messed something up. But I'm going, oh, yeah, why the heck did that blood (laughs) try to escape? (laughs) Yeah. It's like a gallon of it. 
Yeah, it was pouring. <laughs> yep. Tommy notes that she has damage from long-term corset wearing. And then he gets, I guess those are rib cutters. We In landscaping, we just called them loppers. <laughs> and he cuts out a big chunk of her rib tissue. Yeah, and it was very, the sound was what is the, that there. Yeah. Good fully work. He <laughs> notes that her... Sorry. <laughs> he notes that her lungs have been blackened, not from smoking, like blackened like house fire, but there's no other damage to indicate that, that was the case. Tommy says it's like finding a bullet in a brain with no gunshot wound. Which was a great All the damage. Was... Yeah. All the damage, broken joints, burnt lungs. Her organs have been scarred on the inside. It's all hidden on the inside. And and neither was, of them have. That was the coolest thing to think about. It's like, how would you do that? I'm thinking through it. And of course, you know, we've seen a ton of horror movies, blah, blah, blah. And I hope I'm not giving things away because we give things away anyway. But I'm starting to think, my gosh, it's witchcraft. This isn't zombies. This isn't vampires. This is a witch. That's how do yeah. you explain all this stuff? Because her organs having marks on them without her having any external mark. That was like, wow, that's not something I would have thought about for story at the beginning. Yeah. How do you have something that's so wounded and damaged hidden away so well that there's no sign of it on the outside? And that's the whole theme of the movie, right? Yeah. Tommy notes you'd only do that if you're trying to make someone suffer. And then there's this big noise outside and Austin goes to investigate what it is. And here we have a quick... They're separated back and forth kind of shot thing. While he's away, Tommy's looking at the crime scene photos. He notes how everyone else is just this big mangled, bloodied condition, but Jane is just meticulously clean. And Austin's out in the hall and they start to make use of this element they do such a good job with. There's a convex mirror at the corner. Yeah. And we have those at work because we have blind corners all over the place there. And so you can see somebody as you're walking along, so you don't run into him. He sees a figure standing around the corner. But he gets to the corner, and there's no one there. The noises outside continue, so he keeps going down the hall. Back in the morgue, Tommy just flat out asks Jane what happened to her. And then he notices there's something odd going on with the skin. He's going to look at that, but Austin's all the way down the hall, and he starts to head up the stairs that lead out. And then he notes that there's a door ajar and he swings the door open and looks into this darkened room. Cut back to Tommy. He's doing something with the body and he, I think it was actually the ribs that he cut. Yeah. Caught his wrist and slightly cuts him on the wrist. So you got that blood sacrifice now. <laughs> yep. Austin's back in the office. He turns on the light to look around, and both he and Tommy note there are these strange air movements and sounds coming from the vents. Tommy's washing off his damaged wrist, and Austin's looking into one of the air ducts. He removes the cover, and looking down the dark air vent, he puts his ear up to listen better, and when he turns to look, something quickly moves across the air duct. And it startles him, and he falls off his chair he was standing on. He turns and sees this figure in the doorway, but it's Tommy who came to see what caused the noise. Gets back up on his feet, gets back on the chair, brave kid, and he looks, and there's the cat in the vent. Not quite dead, making these small mewing noises, but certainly nothing anyone can do anything about. 
Tommy seems pretty upset by the whole thing, and Austin watches as Tommy snaps its neck, putting it out of its misery. Now, here's maybe what you were going to mention. I'm like, okay, so this cat's been running around catching mice, and 30 minutes after it catches its last mouse, you find it in the air duct. It looks like it had been beat and just attacked by something. I guess it's dead. Let's move on with our day. You're not questioning this. You're not wondering what is going on. Why is our cat in the vent bloody? That was a little yeah. weak there, too. They take the cat down to the crematorium, and Tommy puts him in and lights a fire. And he asks Austin to give him a minute. So we get the feeling that the cat meant something to him. As Austin's leaving, he checks that mirror again. There's nobody in the hallway. But Austin is now alone in the morgue. He goes to wash his hands, and one of the empty body drawers swings open. So there are a he couple good to... horror movie tropes in here. We got some yep. fog, yep. we get the in the reflection in the mirror, we get the doors opening, but not overdone, not super jump scare. Yeah. It's hard to avoid those, just in general. And the key is if you're going to use them, to use them subtly. And they do it very well here. Right. Because, again, it, it, with movies, you m- both basically have 2D images. That's all you really got to work with to scare them. If you use the music right, you've got some sounds, the sound effects and stuff. But it's a 2D. So it's you got to do some of those things to build that atmosphere. Right. And that way, also, we know it's supposed to be scary. That's yeah. stupid. But that's exactly why some of these have come up, because it's always spooky when a door opens and nobody's there. So it gets you. Sure. It's like Midsummer in Sweden. They think it's funny. But the rest of us are like, this is really disturbing. <laughs> oh, yeah, the comedy. <laughs> the cult. Yeah. He walks over to close that body drawer door and his dad comes in and Tommy mentions that the cat was his wife's and it was a pain in the ass. And Austin says. Yeah, I miss her too, which is just this really nice way of Austin picking up on what the actual problem here was. He tells Tommy he can talk to him, but Tommy insists he's fine. So now we're getting into the more in-depth parts of the autopsy. We're cutting into Jane's digestive tract. This is the upper small intestine. And Tommy finds an intact Jimson weed flower. It's moonflower. They're gorgeous flowers. They bloom at night only. They close up during the day. They're hallucinogenic, but they're also very poisonous. And it's not even, it hasn't even been digested. So the entire thing is just sitting in there. Again, it's like the puzzle box. Pieces. The radio suddenly kicks in, letting us know there's a big storm coming in. Austin tries to talk Tommy into waiting until morning, but Tommy insists they're going to have to keep going. Once we start something, we finish it, he says. He goes back to her digestive tract and pulls out another foreign object, which might even be stranger than finding an entire Jensen flower, moonflower in there. There is a object wrapped in a muslin cloth. It's a hex bag. And they those open... are natural. <laughs> yeah. They open it to reveal a tooth, and Austin like instantly finds out that's the lower molar that she was missing. They unwrap the cloth to discover it's got runes or a sigil on it. There's Roman numerals running around the edge. Austin notes it's 27. Then he goes back and compares the thread that they found in her mouth to the material itself. It seems to be a match. 
And then he double checks and the tooth doesn't fit in the place where she's missing one on the lower jaw. So at this point, they sum up everything they've seen, right? She was bound, had her tongue removed, had a tooth pulled out, wrapped in some ritualistic cloth, was force-fed that, then poisoned with a moonflower, which would paralyze her as well. She had internal organ damage as though she'd been stabbed, and then she had burns on her lungs to show that she had inhaled super hot gases like they tried to burn her, even though the throat didn't have any signs of that damage. All of this is done without any mark on the outer body. So Austin comes here. I mentioned witches, but I'm thinking at this point, huh, this could be alien also. She's healing, but it's only her outer body that's healing or skinwalker shape change or something too. It's, it was like all that damage internally. And it's, it's almost like a murder on the Orient Express. This person tried to poison her. This person tried to burn her. This person tried to stab her. They all had to do it to kill her. Rasputin, right? Yeah. Except he didn't make it at the end. Obviously, neither did no. she at this point. Austin, you think? Austin's, I think she was a human. She was a sacrifice. This was a sacrificial thing. And Tommy doesn't disagree with him, but he's like, how do you do that without leaving no marks? And right around here is one of those scenes where you can see that the bottom of her feet are dirty. And it's the only part of her feet that is except under her nails, which we can't see. Then the radio has this kind of focus moment where it comes up and it's like, there's a big storm. And trust me, this is not the kind of storm you want to get caught in the middle of. And then at the end, he adds, one thing's for sure, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> and then the song starts back up. That's a Freddy Krueger thing where... He's inhabiting the radio and he's talking directly to the dream people or whoever. Yeah. At this point, Austin suggests that he and his dad just get out of here. This is also where Tommy basically skins Jane. He discovers that there are tattoos on the inside of her skin, which is just, I was just blown away by that. I'm like, that is so crazy and so impossible. Yeah, it was a a really nice added touch to be like, yeah, this is off the rails now. I can see why the one guy had trouble sleeping after reading (laughs) this. First of all, the skinning part was pretty well done for a movie. And by well, done, uh, that creepy factor and making it very realistic. Yeah. Yeah. And then you got to stop him. It's like, how the hell do you tattoo the inside of somebody's skin and put it back? With no mark. That's just crazy. That really definitely was an over-the-top story moment there. Yep. And this whole scene is building tension, building tension, and the doors slowly pull shut. And both of them turn to watch the doors closing, and they're puzzled. And then every fluorescent light in the lab explodes, leaving them in darkness. Yeah, another trope. (laughs) Yeah. You hear every drawer. (laughs) Right. Every drawer pops open, and you hear this thump of a body hitting the floor. And then someone's struggling. Turns out it's Austin. He gets his phone out and turns his flashlight on, showing that all of the doors are open, and Tommy is just standing there, slack-jawed, saying, let's get the fuck out of here. (laughs) Yeah, let's go. Way to go, bud. We're not going to try and solve this mystery. We're getting out. Of course, it's not going to be that easy. A little late. You're halfway through the movie, so too bad. Now, this is one of the things that does drive me nuts. 
they do this in every movie, right? Where all of the fluorescent tubes explode. They just blow up all over the place. But they never mention the fact that now the floor is going to be just covered in super fine ground glass. Yeah. They're just not standing up, putting it. They're not barefoot like diehard. So. But for Austin to stand up, he's going to have to put his hand down, right? Yeah. To help push himself up off the floor. That's nitpicking. We have bigger things to worry about. Yeah. They're walking down the hall and the generator kicks on and all the lights come back on, the ones that haven't blown up. And there's this super loud thump from upstairs. Elevator's not working, so they're going to take the stairs up, but the doors won't open because they're those Bilko kind of doors that lift up. And both Austin and Tommy are pushing on it. And it turns out that big thump was a tree falling on the house. So they can't get out. Just Austin's so trying to get a signal. Yeah. Austin's trying to get a signal on a cell phone. Can't get one. And Thomas is like, we have a landline. <laughs> so they head into the office. Yeah. They head down the hall and there's this tapping sound coming from the morgue. And it freaks them both out. So they just run down the hall to of the office, slip through the door. And Austin shuts it and locks it. He's pointing back at the door and he's mouthing, what the hell was that? Tommy picks up the phone and has a signal bucking the whole horror trope there yeah but that's why we have a storm right he dials the phone number and the sheriff's office answers the phone and the guy on the other end is like i can't hear you and tommy's put burke on the line and the sheriff gets on and tommy says you got to come help we're in trouble he really can't hear him and then the line goes dead and we hear that bell that was tied around the guy's ankle so it's someone awesome (laughs) yes austin gets down and looks out of the crack under the door and you see a pair of feet step up to the door and you hear the bell on its ankle then there's pounding on the door austin and tommy barricade the door with the filing cabinet and then the knocking stops austin's wondering what the hell's going on he says it's because of jane it's because we decided to cut into her tommy's trying to be rational about it at this stage i don't know how you could be yeah (laughs) and then he notes that his wrist is bleeding again so he goes in the bathroom to wash off his wrist. Then he notes that the shower curtain's wiggling. In the other room, Austin is saying he should have just left. He wanted to leave. In the bathroom, Tommy's going to pull back the curtain, and Austin sees him about to do it and can see a figure through the curtain. He tries to warn Tommy, but Tommy pulls the curtain back, and there's no one there. They both look at each other with a sigh of relief, but then suddenly Tommy's yanked off his feet and the door slams shut. One of those horror movie delayed jump scares. Yep. Austin runs the door. It won't open. Tommy's just being flat out assaulted in there. And Austin finally gets the door open. His dad's on the floor and he hears the door swing open in the other room. The door they had barricaded is open. The filing cabinet's not there. Tommy's in bad shape, but Austin helps him up. Tommy says whoever assaulted him had her eyes. They were gray. They were her eyes. Austin just says that they're way past possible. This has to have something to do with her corpse. I like how pragmatic these guys are. You know what I mean? Which they're not. The the ME, they set that up at the beginning. That's what his father the whole time. Don't jump to conclusions. Take what you got. Just evaluate what we have. So they step out in the hallway. There's a bloody rag on the floor. They look back towards the stairs and the lights flicker a bit. 
Then they turn and head back towards the morgue itself. The room itself's a disaster. Everything's out everywhere. It's lit by the emergency lighting. They cautiously enter the room. Jane still where she, they left her in the same condition she was in. But everything they took out of her has started to decompose, like rapid decomposition. Tommy decides he's going to take the body to the crematorium. <laughs> We're just and then the door. <laughs> yeah. Then the door closes. And they're closing her, they're closing her up and moving her onto a cart. Then the door locks. Austin grabs an axe and starts to hack at the door. He looks through the hole he cut in the door, and there's an empty hallway. And then you see the stitched face of that first corpse that Emma looked at, like in the hole looking back at him. And this whole section purposely was reminiscent of The Shining. He does mention that he had done that to as an homage to The Shining, which gets referenced a lot in these horror movies. I was just going to say that. If anyone has an axe to a door, it's The Shining. <laughs> yep. Tommy turns to look at the hole and sees the same body, so it's not Austin hallucination, hallucinating. It tries to cry out, and Austin says, fuck it, and just starts pouring alcohol all over the body. Tommy takes a whole book of matches, lights it, and tosses it on the alcohol, and everything goes up in flames. Then the flames rocket to the ceiling, and the morgue's on fire. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so Austin grabs a fire we, extinguisher. We were talking earlier about it, the body, like, rejecting the dirt. Here it rejects the flame. That the flame just leaps off. Oh, yeah. I kind of saw that and I'm like, oh, nothing's going to work. We established earlier with the blood, something is still alive. Austin grabs the fire extinguisher, but like the whole room is on fire. It's not going to help. But then the flames just suddenly die down and disappear. And Jane's body is in the exact same perfect condition it was before it caught on fire. Yeah. Then Tommy hears the elevator. Austin grabs the axe. They find the morgue doors aren't are unlocked. Austin starts to walk down the hall and Tommy's behind him. As they go down the hall, the lights start to flicker, leaving them periodically in the darkness. The elevators are doors are closing just as they get to them. And here's where they use that convex mirror again. The camera focuses on it and we see the corpse with a bell walking down the hall, reflected the mirror coming towards them. In the hall they're in, you don't see the body. You just hear it approaching. Eventually, you can see something moving through what looks like fog, and the lights flicker on and off. Tommy grabs the axe as it approaches, and the corpse is approaching them. Austin puts Tommy in the elevator as the doors open, and as they start to close, then the power cuts out. So the doors <laughs> open just a bit. The corpse keeps coming, though, and Tommy's standing in the elevator with the axe, and as it gets to the elevator, he just lashes out with the axe, and it hits the floor. Now, the minute then, that happened, I'm like, huh, dead body. They hit it with the axe and it hits the floor. This is not going to go well. I don't know right. quite what it is, but I know something's not right. And the lights come back on all of a sudden. And we discover it was actually Emma. I didn't go right. She is in the process of dying. Austin's over her body weeping. The elevator starts back up and they start riding it up. But then it comes to a halt, leaving them in the dark in the elevator sitting on the floor. Austin staring desolately into the opposite corner. Tommy checks his ribs, and they're looking really bad. Austin blames himself for telling her to come back, and Tommy says it's his fault, because Austin shouldn't even be here anymore. Austin says she couldn't have known, and Tommy says 
that's what everyone told me about your mom. And here we get this more background. Very weird spot, but okay. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a lull in the storm, right? Where they can come out and have a true confessional kind of moment. It seems like she killed herself while she silently suffered from depression that Tommy didn't notice. So there you have something hidden under the surface causing damage no one else can see because you have this Austin wanting to leave, never talking to his dad about it. His dad be grieving over the loss of his wife, never talking about it. His wife killing herself because she was struggling with depression and never talking about it. And then you have Jane, which is everything's hidden under the surface and she can't talk about it. Then you got to wonder if they're trying to say some bigger statement about society. I wasn't quite sure about that. That's always something that gets discussed in book discussions. But in horror movies, we've said are great vehicles for lots of statements about they are life and stuff. So there, there could be, but I wasn't picking up on it so much. I was going to say my kind of takeaway was like, don't let stuff fester. If you wanted to boil it down to a simple sentence, deal with stuff when it happens. Don't wait 300 years. Austin wonders why she hasn't killed them yet. He says there's something she doesn't want them to find. The crematory just lights on its own and smoke is just rolling out. Austin wants to go back, figure out how she died, because if he thinks he, if he can, this whole thing will stop. Uh, they stop out of the elevator. Austin pauses to look at his dead girlfriend. Tommy pulls a cloth out of nowhere, puts it over the body out of respect. Now they see the smoke rolling down the hall, and the two of them head into the smoke using the wall as a guide to try and find their way back to the morgue, which is a good idea as long as that wall's not on fire. Right. As Just long as throwing it's, it out there. As long as it doesn't like change and move, which happens. Yeah. Somewhere along the way, they end up slightly separated. Tommy's attacked. It sounds like he's being stabbed. And there's this shambling figure moving through the fog towards him. But Austin finds him first. Helps him to his feet. And the two of them continue on and into the morgue itself. Austin bars the door. He turns on what has to be, it's got to be like the last light in the place. <laughs> um, Austin scalps her, and then they cut into her brain cavity, and her brain looks normal. And Tommy's like, there's got to be something. The rest of her body has been so scarred on the inside. There's got to be something. So it cuts out a, a sample of tissue. Austin puts it under the microscope. and He's puzzled. Tommy comes over and takes a look at it, and he's puzzled because the tissue is still alive. Right. And Austin's like, that's impossible. She doesn't even have a heart anymore. We cut it out of her. Discouraged, Austin heads over to where that cloth bag that held the tooth was laying. He folds it over and notes that the num Roman numerals aren't necessarily Roman numerals at all. Everything lines up. Like when you fold it over like that and backlight it, it says Leviticus 2027. 20, and for all of you non-Bible scholars out there, I'll be quoting this from the NIV, not the King James. I should have used the King James because the NIV basically says any man or woman who works with spirits, she will be stoned to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. The King James, they say witch. Right. The NIV doesn't say that. And here's the part that I thought was a little lazy in the writing. They instantly leap to the Salem witch trials, 1693. Yeah. Which wasn't Virginia so much. No. And 
there's no reason why every American culture witch tale has to revolve around Salem, Massachusetts. Right. <laughs> now, they're from England, so maybe that's like the only thing they know about it. The other thing that's weak about this thread is that Tommy knows everything about the Salem witch trials. He's throwing out names and everyone was innocent and he's just got all this information. The camera does this thing, and this is why Andre is so ingenious. The camera pauses on Jane's face, and instead of just being a lifeless corpse with her mouth open, her face looks almost smug. Like the actress is, yeah, you're starting to get it now. And it's not like it was a secret she didn't want them to know. I don't think she cared, really. This, you're right, this is, it started to feel almost like the movie should have been five more minutes to lead this. It, it was definitely, okay, we're running out of time. We have to get this out to the audience so they're with us. But arguably, it doesn't hurt the movie that much. It was just, I had seen somebody do a review of the film, and that was like his big thing was Salem Witch Trials again. It's always right. got to be the Salem Witch Trials. Yeah, agreed. And I get it. But considering yeah. I was in Salem last year with the sole purpose of researching and writing a witch story, so it was nice to see something different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tommy suggests that everything they did to her because they thought she was a witch actually turned her into this kind of monster. She wants them to feel the pain she's experiencing because she's not dead. She can feel everything that's being done to her. And if you're lying and that's in the ground she's... for 300 years, you've gone a little crazy. Oh, yeah, for sure. You remember that show Heroes? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. They did that in the third season where there was a guy who was immortal and he was like the bad guy. And the time traveling dude goes back in time and traps him in a coffin that gets buried. He can't die. He's trapped in that coffin. Construction comes along. They break him out. And here he is like some sociopath. They created him as a sociopath by taking him back in time. And depositing him in that coffin. So Highly causality kind of thing. thing. At one point. Yeah. So he says they need to suffer like she did. It's revenge. It's a ritual of her own making. And nobody must have gotten as close to the truth as they have. She's still suffering. And she won't stop. Until. And right then something smashes on the door. It's smashing to get let in. Austin goes over to deal with it. Tommy leans in close and whispers to her and says, I won't fight you. Just let Austin live. But suddenly the smashing on the door stops. And there's this nice shot between them, Tommy and Jane, from one set of dead eyes to the other. Then Tommy's expression turns to one of pain. And Jane's expression almost changes from smug to satisfied now. Yeah. And you can see his joints start to break on the inside. And hers, you can see being fixed subcutaneously yeah that was pretty gruesome and the sound effects were good yeah her eyes start to decloud her eyes decloud the incisions they make start to seal shut everything starts to retract back he opens his mouth and expels smoke he's experiencing everything she has his eyes cloud over now one of the super cool things that they didn't do that i really appreciate they show when you see her eyes clear and Austin sitting there sadly watching his father die. Tommy's reaching for a scalpel to end his own life. And like 
I fully expected Jane to sit up and walk over and just kill Austin by hand. But they didn't do that. They yeah. just left her there on the slab, which I thought was great. Yeah, actually, yeah, it's like she's in the spirit world controlling things. Right. Austin sees the scalpel, sees Tommy reaching for it. Tommy asks Austin to kill him, and Austin does manage to do it. Tommy's head rolls back, and he stops breathing. And he's dead. Okay, happy ending. Austin gets away. Uh, that's the end, guys. Yeah. No. Austin's caressing his father's face. He's weeping. He rolls to the side and sits staring at the door. His lights come back on. The morgue doors are closed. The radio starts back up. Nothing's any different, except there's two dead bodies in the hall. You can hear voices crying from outside as the sheriff's trying to get in. So apparently that phone call got through, right? Enough. Yeah. Austin heads down the hall and there's chainsaw cutting. He steps over his dead girlfriend. He's trying to open the door and it still won't open. And the sheriff insists it's cleared. Then the sheriff starts saying, open up, open up, open up your heart and let the sun shine in. And Austin's freaked out. He backs up. He hits this railing on the stair balcony. He hears a sound below him. And when he turns back, he sees his father. And he's startled and he breaks through the railing, falling to the floor, breaking his neck. So she was not holding up her end of the bargain. She's crazy and wants revenge. Yes, there you go. Yeah, you have a daytime shot of the house outside. There's lots of sheriff cars in the driveway. You've got all those evidence tags everywhere, medical examiners, broken mirrors, axe wound to the door. The sheriff walks into the morgue, looks down at Tommy with a scalpel in his chest and Jane's body lying on the slab like nothing was done with it. It's just laying there. The sheriff wants the body taken all the way out of the county and delivered to a different morgue somewhere else. He's like, let them deal with it. Yeah. They load her into a van and take body bags of the other corpses from the house, load them into the second van. And I thought this was a really interesting shot because both vans are pulling out of the driveway and the one with Tommy and Austin goes to the right and the one with Jane goes to the left. Yeah. The guy driving the van with Jane in it, he's driving along, and he turns the radio on, and there's some fire and brimstone preacher, and then it switches to open up your heart and let the sun shine in. And then there's this long, slow pan across Jane's body. It stops at her feet. She's got a toe tag on, and it looks as though she's been walking around because there's dark patches on her heels and on the balls of her feet. And just before the screen goes black, her left big toe wiggles slightly. Ding. And you got credits. Yeah. Yep. So that, that ending, I would have been just quite happy if once the boy fell and died, if that kind of would have just been the end. And then you wonder what happened oh. to her body. Because no denouement. Yeah, showing her in the ambulance and the tow thing, that was almost a little too cheesy for this movie. It just didn't seem to fit the rest of the movie. Yeah. It's Plus, kind of sequel leading. That's it. That's how Halloween 2 is. At the beginning, he's in the ambulance and he sits up and then kills everyone in the ambulance and we and he goes back to the hospital to get Jamie Lee Curtis. So it yeah. was, that was like the homage to Halloween there, which made, I right. guess to me made it feel a little more cheesy for this movie. <laughs> well, maybe it was. Maybe it, I never heard him say that, but maybe it was like a nod from him to Halloween. That, he had a Shining reference in it. But then again, like a lot of the horror movies, you get some of the same things that happen because that fits. 
people sitting yep. around drinking tea with sunflowers doesn't make you into the scary mood, but ambulances with bodies does. Yeah, ambulances with bodies always puts me in a scary mood. Yeah, no I matter what the background. If I drive into a restaurant and there's an ambulance there, I keep driving. I don't stay at that restaurant. <laughs> All right. There's Autopsy of Jane Doe, which again, it was very interesting because it had the feel of some big budget movie. It was written like a 70s horror almost. Didn't have a yeah. lot of the typical jump scare tropes and stuff. So definitely different if you're into horror movies. And it's also one of those ones that I that for me became more fascinating the more I found out about it. Like the whole thing using an actress for Jane through the whole thing. Right. And shot all of a sudden Overdahl just is like, I want to make a scary horror movie that's not find me a script. And I learned about the blacklist. I'd never heard about that before. And the whole thing I thought was a nice little journey on from my end. Yeah, I agree. This is one of the few in our three seasons so far that if somebody said what would you recommend that I watch? Start off with this one because it's very approachable, very close to what most people would be used to as a horror movie. Yeah. A little more depth. I also, and I know it's really late because it's the end of the third season or approaching the end of the third season, but I came up with a brilliant way to listen to our podcast. Oh, okay. What you should do is you go through the titles of all the movies and if you find one you you listen to the podcast until we introduce the actors. And then after we introduce the actors, stop the podcast, watch the movie, and then come back to listen to the second half of it. We'll have to start telling people that in the podcast. Okay. Uh, hit pause. Hit pause on right your recorder. Here. Yeah. <laughs> stop. What's the next movie? We looked that up before we started recording. The next movie is The Ritual. Ritual. And yes, we've had a lot of one word titles it seems lately uh, the apostle and midsummer and ritual the ritual yeah the autopsy of jane Do oh wait that's a few words but we do have our <laughs> annual halloween fest coming up here we got to figure out a, a night for us to get there and do that we should record and then edit just like our comments and stuff on the movies maybe not showing the movies and getting ourselves in legal trouble but edit our comments so people can listen to us talking we could stream it live on facebook i wonder how that would go get one poor well, person that would stumble on it <laughs> jack might watch it yeah jack and that's going to beg the whole question to what movie we're going to watch because i could bring titles or we could pick one that neither one of us have seen and go from there let's do that let's each pick out several movies and then we'll put them together and see which ones we want to actually do because last year we did freaky with vince vaughn because it was newer i wanted to see it neither of us had seen it so that was nice and then the other movies you had seen and the one we saw the musical stage fright i found the remake of it which is nowhere near as comedic as that one i didn't know they remade it yeah i've got a remake of it i found it at the exchange gotta love the exchange horror section Wow, I guess so. Yeah, and we also watched the house that October built. Yes, there is a second one, but I don't know. But yeah, yes. I saw that. So let's, yeah, let's each come up with a couple movies, and then we'll have a special bonus Halloween episode. Awesome. We're really, that would be our bonus episode for the season. There you go, the Halloween event. Perfect the Halloween event. All right, cool. so. 
the ritual next. Yep. Looking forward to it. All right, man. I'll talk to you later. Yep. You have been listening to Horror Lasagna. To see all of our seasons and listen to all of the movie reviews with all the themes for each season, check out HorrorLasagna.com. And if you like the podcast, like the movies and reviews, please give us a like, share with a friend, subscribe to our Facebook page, subscribe on your favorite podcast app, pass it along, let people know, tell us, hey, I liked it. That was a good movie. Thank you. We would appreciate it. The creature slips from perception. Pay attention. It will rise again.